Hey guys, thank you so much for having me again. Uh, my name is Thomas Costello. Uh, it was great to be with you folks last week. Uh, my uh, first sermon in a little while here at New Hope Community Church. So thankful to be here again. Let me start with a question. What was your favorite story as a kid? Your favorite story growing up? I don't know what it was for you. For, for me, uh, I remember that back when I was a kid, they used to kind of come door to door and try to sell you sets of books. I don't know if anybody remembers that in Hawaii, door to door sales used to be much more common. Uh, and I remember my, my folks, they bought me this set of books uh, that was like kind of courageous stories of people from history uh, told with illustrations and those things. And I remember so clearly my favorite story was the one about Jackie Robinson. And it was a story about courage uh, and I remember vividly as a kid, a little boy, I was so cool that I, I looked at the pictures and there was this one picture that I remember, you have these memories that kind of stick with you where uh, Jackie was getting slid into uh, and the guy spiked him uh, with his cleats there and there was blood in the picture there. And I thought it was so cool, but I was always so moved by the story of Jackie Robinson and, and what he did and the way he broke that barrier and the courage that he had was really meaningful to me as a kid. And I asked that question today because we're gonna talk about another one of my favorite stories. Uh, I think, as I thought about this, probably one of the most important stories ever told, ever, like not just in the Bible, but like in all of his human history, this is one of the most well-known stories, uh, one of the most important stories, uh, and I think it is one of the most powerful stories. Uh, you'll know last week we started off in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be continuing in the second half of Luke chapter 15 with this story today. And it is the third of three parables that Jesus is telling towards sinners and Pharisees. And it is the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. Now, you'll remember last week we talked about the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. And this is the third in a sequence of lost things. So lost sheep, lost coin, lost son is this third one here. And all of them are conveying a somewhat similar kind of message, but this one just goes a lot deeper. Um, I, I really, again, I put some thought into this. I can't think of a more impactful story. If I think in scripture, ones that people maybe even outside of the church would know, I think it's the prodigal son. Maybe the story of the good Samaritan uh, has a lot of power in history and people just know this story here. But um, today we're going to talk about this story and I want us to look at it from the perspective of the, of the primary characters, specifically the two brothers in this story. Now, a lot of times when people think about the story of the prodigal son, if you're just recalling it from memory, you might even forget that there are two brothers in this story. The whole end of the story is about the second brother. We'll talk about him in a little bit here. But I want us to talk in this, and as we're talking about it, we're going to be digging in, and I want you to be identifying, and that's the way we really should approach parables, is there, we're trying to identify timeless truths in the characters and what happens in the story here. And I think there are some very important timeless truths. And there's also some characters that we really probably identify with, maybe one or the other, or maybe both, maybe one a little bit more than the other. But I want you to be thinking about that as we dig into this story here today. So the good news is, while I'm typically the kind of pastor or preacher that goes like through three points, I don't have any points really today, although it looks like my, uh, my message as I look at it here, there's like 16 points. So maybe you guys are really in trouble as I go through this. But, uh, but really, I, I actually don't have 
a lot of like long illustrations or deep points because I just want to really let the scripture speak for itself here. And I'm not just going to read it. We're going to kind of go through verse by verse. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 11. We're going to read to the end of the chapter there. So we're just going to go verse by verse. I want to pray before we dig in, ask the Holy Spirit to move in us and speak to us and use this timeless story that I assume most of us probably know to really teach us some of his truths today and help us to identify with uh, the stories that he's trying to tell here in the parable. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your timeless word and the timelessness of this story. God, I pray that as we read it, that you would give us fresh eyes to take a story that all of us have heard before. And would you give it a new lease for us to be able to be something that's actually new and fresh and a new word and something new that we can do with this. God, I invite you, Holy Spirit, to, to come and move upon us and show us. And we just, we confess right now that we open up our hearts and are ready to receive what you would say. And we're willing to give over parts of our lives that you're calling us to give over. So we ask you to speak to us and move in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's dig in. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And we're going to go kind of verse by verse through this whole passage here and dig in. And I have one question for you at the end. Here we go. Jesus continued, it says. So after the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin, he's telling this story to Pharisees uh, and to tax collectors and sinners. Kind of the imagine the, the tax collectors and sinners are sitting down right in front of him up close. And the Pharisees are kind of in the back like, hmm waiting for him to mess up. Uh, so that's the context we're hearing it in. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Pause there for just a second. In those, in that culture, in that time, the way that uh, estates were divided up is that the older son he was the one that would inherit all the responsibility, the family's land and two thirds of the entire estate and the, his mom and all of his sisters and everybody in the household would become his responsibility. So the oldest son would receive two thirds of the estate. And then the younger son uh, or sons would, would split up the other third that was there. So they would get a smaller portion. And in this case, what this young man is demanding is he's saying, Father, I would like for you to, to give me my third, my third of this estate. Now, this is probably a pretty wealthy family. It sounds like from later in this story, we learned that they have servants working on it. It's probably a large farm. Uh, everybody's doing very well. So a relatively wealthy family. And this son comes with this request. And if I'm being really honest, that's a pretty rude request, right? He, he's basically looking at his dad and saying, hey, dad, I know that this is supposed to be yours until the end of your life. I demand it now. Uh, I am I am done with kind of the, the sonship part of things. He, he's basically saying to his father, it would actually be better for me if you were to die today. If your life would end now and we would do the divvying up of your assets and I would get my third, I hate it here so much and I'm so done with you, dad. And I'm so done with this family. I want my third now. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Can I get what I'm supposed to get when you die and just have it now? Can you imagine how hurtful that would be? Could you imagine if one of, if for you parents out there, if one of your children came to you and said those exact things that, that they, they said, hey, I, I'd rather you be dead. I want your, my inheritance here now. That would break my heart 
to hear something like that from one of my sons. But this father, in his wisdom, allows his son to do this. He, de he just chooses. It says that he divides it up. He divides his property between them, gives him his third, and he moves on his way. Continuing on, verse 13, it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. So he collected up all of his things, cleared out his drawers at the house. Uh, and then it says that uh, he set off for a distant country, and there... He squandered all of his wealth in wild living is what it says. So this younger son, he takes everything he has and he tries to get as far away as he possibly can. We don't know where, but it's some kind of a distant country. It's Timbuktu. It's the middle of nowhere. It's, it's, I, I kind of think of it as like, and not that there's anything wrong with this place, but Las Vegas, right? Like, like it has to be the most successful ad campaign for a city of all time is what is the what is the slogan for Vegas? Everybody knows it, right? Yeah, that's right. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's kind of a wink wink to, hey, you can come and do things that you wouldn't normally do in your hometown here and nobody at home is going to find out about it. It's going to be cool. It's kind of a done a little bit tongue in cheek, but I mean, I, can you name the what is Honolulu's uh, city slogan? I don't know. What is New York City's slogan? You know, Vegas has done a great job branding this, but there is a deep truth that's in there that I think a lot of us kind of miss. The fact that when when we uh, when we want to do things that we know we shouldn't do, we want to get as far away as possible from people that know us. They might ask us questions about it. Uh, and so he goes to this place and it says he squanders it all on well, all his wealth on wild living. And so we don't know exactly what that means. We learn later in this story that it included prostitutes, alcohol. Uh, he basically just did whatever he wanted to do. And he had absolutely no plan whatsoever for what he was going to do after this here. It says that he squandered all of it. So he wasn't like kind of like investing it and then squandering his, his interests or something like that. He just decided, I am going to live it up now. I'm going to squander what I have. I'm going to go for it. He let all of it loose there. Now, to someone who was hearing this story, they would really understand how evil this really was. Because in those times, your wealth wasn't just for you. It wasn't this idea that it was just yours. It really is foreign to them. There was something that was, it was something to be passed on from generation to generation. So everybody, should he ever have kids or uh, should he be married and his wife and his grandkids, they're all supposed to benefit from this in the future. He goes and he squanders it all. And then we continue on. Let's look at verse 14. Here's what it says. And it says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the country and he began to be in need. Again, had no plan at all. And then things start to go bad. He probably went in a good time. Maybe the estate was way up. He had lots of money. He goes thinking it's going to be there forever. And then a big famine comes or a, a natural economic depression kind of happens. We've lived through those. We've had those in our lives. We may be at the beginning of one right now, if we're being honest, but he had no plan whatsoever. And things really started to, to spiral out of control for him. Verse 15, it says, so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. You see, the younger brother in this story was in such a bad way that he uh, was so poor and so hungry that he had to basically say, I will do anything. I will take 
any any job that's available. Anybody ever been in that position before where you, it doesn't even matter what the job is, it doesn't matter what the pay is, I'll take less than minimum wage, I will take anything to be able to work and eat. Uh, I've never been in a position like that before, but it sounds like it'd be a terrible place to be. I imagine some people have, and it, it, it would be very hard to be in that place. And that's where he was. And to the readers of that time, they would have understood how low a good Jewish boy would have had to go to take on a job like that. It, it says very specifically that he went out and hired himself out to someone who put him to work in his pig fields, right? So he was, he was able to... Uh, he, he was there and he went to go work with the pigs and he longed to, to fill his stomach so much that he would even eat pig slop. That's what he was willing to do. A good Jewish person, they weren't allowed to touch pigs. They weren't allowed to be anywhere near pigs. In fact, if you touched a pig, you had to go through a week-long ceremony, ceremonial cleansing process in order to be welcomed back into society. You'd have to go through ritual cleanings and all these things so that people will talk to you and be anywhere within a few feet of you. You would have to go through all that stuff. To be a someone that would work in a pig, cleaning up after pigs, and want to eat their food and not be able to, that was the Jesus in the story telling people that this guy was lower than being a prostitute, right? Like he, he took the worst job that anybody could possibly imagine and said, I will do anything so much so that by nature of that job, he was, he was like naturally separated from anybody that would want to associate with him. He couldn't even do that. It was so low that the position that he had to take. Continuing on, here's what it says in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he's, he's sitting there and he's so hungry and he's eating pig slop and he's, he, he comes to his senses, it says in 17. It says, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to spare? And here I am starving to death. Here's what I'll do. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your, your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So what this boy decides to do is he said that he, he, we would call this basically repentance in the middle of the lowest season of his life where he's separated from his community, separated from anybody that loves him, eating pig slop, doing the worst job, no food to eat, he's starving. He comes to his senses and he says, I am going to turn. I'm going to repent. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to tell him, I don't even want to be a son again. I know that that's off the table for me. I know that that ship has sailed. I know that that's not a possibility. But what I will tell him is that I am willing just to be your servant because these servants, at least they didn't work with pigs. At least they were fed meals at the place there. I, I want to go back to my father. So he takes this step. That is such an important, important step to take as he gets up and he starts to go back to his father. And so here's what it says. He actually, it says that. Uh, it says, so he got up. That's verse 20. It says, so he got up and went to his father. That's so important that he did that. And then here is one of my favorite verses. We'll get to it in a second. But it says, but while he was still a long way off. Remember, he went to a distant country. He's been walking back for days. But it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. 
This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. The son put feet behind his feelings. He decided, I'm going to get up. He actually had to make the first move and go. But what I want you to, to do is to circle this. If you're writing it in your Bible, put highlight it, do whatever you do. Circle that thing, that those words that while he was a long way off, it wasn't the father waiting for the son to get all the way back to him with his hips on and hands on his hips saying, okay, let's hear it. No, he says, it says, while he was a long way off, what does his father do? He, he goes and he sprints towards his son. So I picture him kind of seeing his son off on the horizon and, and he sees him walking there and he's like, can't quite make out who that is, but I know that walk. That looks really, that looks familiar. I haven't seen, that's my son. He sees his son off in the distance, a long way off. And what does he do? He, he just, he drops whatever was going on in his life and he starts sprinting. He runs at full pace. In those times, for a, a grown man, this has an, he has an adult son. This guy is probably in his 40, 50, at least 40s, maybe 50s. He's an, an older man, a dignified man, a wealthy man who was wearing robes, not really conducive for running, but he breaks out into a full-on sprint. And here he gets to his son, who is filthy, who is covered in pig slop and walking for days, stinks to high heaven. And he, I picture him just tackling his son, getting him in a bear tackle. And he, he hugs him and he embraces him and he squeezes him and he starts showering him and he kisses him all over his face, despite all of the filth that's all over him. His father loves him so much and he showers him with kisses. It's really, it's an amazing thing to think about. As a side note, I think this should be an encouragement to you fathers. Let me just say this as an aside. Be affectionate with your sons. I know it's not culturally cool, but you know what? Give your sons hugs. Give your sons kisses. You know, do do that. I, my, my kids make fun of Tom Brady because he kisses his sons on the lips still as an adult uh, man and his sons are pretty old and it's kind of weird for my sons to tell me, I don't care. Kiss your sons, love them, be affectionate with your sons. It's a great way to model just like this father in this story here. It's a beautiful thing. There was no mistaking from that son that his father still loved him. So this story continues on verse 21. The son in the middle of all this kissing and everything's happening. The son says, the son says to the father, father, stop right there for a second. I have sinned against heaven and I sinned against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he starts just confessing right away. He starts letting this come out of his mouth. He's saying, I'm so sorry that I've sinned against everything. We can't skip this step. That's really important that we have to verbally acknowledge where we have fallen short. But then verse 22, uh, it, it says, um, but the father said to his servants, he, he kind of like interrupts the son, basically. I kind of picture that scene in Dumb and Dumber where uh, they've they've just shared the the limo ride and, and Lloyd puts his finger up to Mary's lips and interrupts her right in the middle there and, and says, just go. It's kind of like the father interrupts his son mid-confession. Uh, and it says, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe I have and put it on him. Get the ring, put the ring on his finger, uh, do, do that and put sandals on his feet and, and do this. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So he interrupts his son 
and he starts a celebration. He immediately moves into, it doesn't take some length of time. He didn't have to prove if he was really sorry or not, or if he's just gonna steal from him again. The moment that his confession begins, before it's even over, the father is saying, it's, it's okay, you're back, let's put a ring. The ring, it symbolizes that he is a, it's his father's wealth and his family seal would have been on it. He put clothes on him because remember, he was probably down to just some scraps that were covering his privates is about all he had left. They put shoes on his feet, they put sandals on him. He, he Those feet would have been pretty darn nasty. Remember, the emissions in those times were not like emissions today. They're bad today. Emissions on the roads were really bad in those times there. So he was walking in all that filth, and he put some brand new sandals on his feet there. And then I want you to notice that it doesn't say go and kill a fattened calf. It says go and kill the fattened calf. They had one fattened calf. There is one calf that they could afford to get really fat and be the one that they they really wanted to be that special one. This was an animal that was reserved for like the big parties, like your daughter's wedding is the kind of calf you would have in this, this fattened calf here. So he says, go ahead, kill the fattened calf. And he said, the son of mine, he was basically dead in my mind. It had been months or years and he, every single day he had been worrying about him and he had basically had to write off his son who he thought was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And so from there we see this love of the father, but that's where the story pivots a little bit. Verse 25, it changes to a part that maybe a lot of us skip in the story, or maybe this story we think ends for some of us here. But here's what it says in verse 25. It gets really interesting. It says, Meanwhile, the older son, who was in the field, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants over and talked to him and asked him, Hey, what, what's going on over there? Your brother has come home, is what he said. He replied, the servant, he said that. Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother, he became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded to him. The older son in this story really just didn't have a clue. He he was totally unaware of what was going on. The dad had been really for years since his brother was lost, had been just brokenhearted. He had seen his dad. He looked depressed everywhere he went. He was so sad that his second son had just totally abandoned his family. It broke his heart every single day. And this brother, his reaction was anger. And I kind of get it. I've been talking about this story with my kids uh, all this week. I do that a lot to kind of prepare when we're doing a message. I'll kind of run it by my family, see what they think, if they have any ideas or thoughts on this. And my kids are all convinced that that guy is right. Like that, that, that this is totally unfair in this story. And I try to teach my kids, we kind of have a lot of debate in our household about fairness, right? Every kid, that's what they all say is, dad, that's not fair. You do this for this person and you do that. And we try to convince our kids that, you know, while we want to be fair and equal in our love, there will be times in our lives if you just compare things in a vacuum where it seems like if you just take one day that we are being unfair and giving this one child more preference than the other. It's natural to happen that way. If you take anything as like a, a little snapshot of some period, there's not everything is going to be even and fair. There's no difference in our love for our kids 
but it doesn't seem fair. So what we tell our kids is because we love your sister much more than we love you. That's why we treat her that way. Of course, in jest, we don't really love any of our kids any differently, but I kind of see where this brother is coming from. It's like, man, I I think he's not putting, putting himself in his father's shoes and doesn't have the right perspective, but yeah, I mean, this is unfair. This is really not, this is not right. The father goes out and he starts begging him. He says, son, please, I, I've lo- I loved you so much. I've loved you this whole time. It's, it's okay. Uh, my heart has been broken by this. Let's read in verse 29. It says, um, he pleaded with his son and in verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you, not just working. I have been slaving for you and I never, never disobeyed your orders yet. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son, this so-called son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? That's the son's reaction. And to be honest, I kind of, I kind of get it. He, he makes his case. I understand that you're happy for him, dad. I understand that you're happy. But I want you to see this, dad, from my perspective. This is not fair. I've been slaving. I, I love that he says, I haven't done anything wrong. I've never disobeyed your orders even once, dad. I didn't do anything like that my entire life. How many of you parents know that there is no way on earth that that statement can be true? He has a little bit of a warped view of himself, right? He says, I've never done anything like this. I've never done anything like this here. And, and, and here you go And it's not just that you say, okay, you can come back and and kind of work your way into the family. You go and have a party for him. Just the other week, I wanted to have my friends over to watch the football game. And you said I couldn't even get some Costco pizzas. You wouldn't even let me do that. And here you're going, you're killing the fattened calf. You're taking him out to Roy's, a party of 20. Let's go have a big celebration. What, What gives, dad? This is not fair. How could you possibly do this? I'm good. He's bad. I've been with you. He hasn't. And you're choosing him over me. This is wrong, dad. That's what this son is saying. Can you understand where he's coming from? His perspective? Have you ever maybe felt that way before? Let's continue on. It kind of ends with this part of the passage. Verse 31. Uh, It says this, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now is alive again. He is lost and now he's found. The father calmly explains to his oldest son that he had to, had to. There was no option but to celebrate in this. He's saying it's no reflection of you at all. Really, you are, uh, you have nothing to do with this. You've always been, I, I acknowledge you are a great son. There's no problem with this at all. Uh, th- I don't have any issue against you, but just know that I had to celebrate. Uh, and the fact that he is alive today and with us and here right now, that is nothing short of miraculous. It is something that we're going to celebrate. And that's where the story ends. And I I think it's fitting that it ends this way because there's not really anything here that we can look at it and say, well, um, you know, this is the interpretation. Jesus doesn't go and tell us, hey, this is how you should understand this. This is who's good. This is who's bad. We're left to do all the interpreting, like most parables, of 
who is this? Who are these people in these stories? Who is the, who are we making the case towards? Who is this supposed to represent here? So my question for you, I told you I'd have a question at the end, is which brother are you? Who, who do you identify with? Who, like I said, whenever we do a parable, that's what we want to do. And a quick disclaimer is you get to choose which character you are, but you cannot be the father in this story, right? The father is already taken. That's God. God is playing the part of the father. We can try and be more like Jesus or like the father in the story. We can have some of his characteristics, but he is not the person we can ascribe ourselves to. And that one's reserved. We're to look at this and take a look at the two brothers and decide which one of these more closely reflects who I am. Which of these two brothers do I, I feel like I relate to more? Maybe you're, you hear this story and you immediately relate to this first brother. You think of him and the, the choices that he made and, and you see a lot of similarities in your own life in that story there. Maybe you have a brother and, and, and if you saw a brother like the brother in this story, you're like, what a, what a, what a prude, what a stick in the mud. He doesn't want to do anything fun. Uh, and, and you kind of have some animosity and tension towards that kind of a, those kinds of people in your life. And you relate to this. Well, it, the word I would put on that, like the word that I would say that person is, is you relate with the rebellious side. That's what I see in this is that rebellious spirit here is that you would, um, you tend to want to have things your own way and, and you, you feel like you're entitled to it. Well, the, for those that are rebellious, the father invites us back. At some point in your life, you'll realize that my own happiness and my own pursuits, I can go to Vegas all I want and do all the things that I want to do that are crazy. Those will always lead to suffering and not to flourishing. And to those who are in that position, God would say to us today, he would invite us back. He would invite you to make one move and he is ready to come sprinting towards you and embracing you and loving you and cherishing you right where you are. Maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you relate more to the second brother. I think for me, that just if you want to know where I stand, that's kind of where I definitely relate to both, but I, I really identify with this second brother. You're someone that, you know, kind of really feels like you love justice and, and you think about all the good things with that, but there's a, a real dark side to some of this. You, you have a tendency to, to be like the Pharisees and have hardness and unforgiveness and an unwillingness to celebrate unless people really earn it. You maybe identify with those kinds of people and those kinds of traits and to, to us, to people like me, and maybe you identify with that, God would say that, when the lost or when people that are dead get back to life, there is nothing that we can do but celebrate. That is cause for absolute and total celebration. And maybe you find yourself kind of tied into one of these brothers. I, I want to encourage you to be, um, I, I think the way that we look, maybe you have a hard time figuring out which one you're, you're closer to. I think what we should get closest to is that of Jesus. And I want to share one last verse with you. As we're trained in this battle to kind of take sides, maybe this is the side and the posture of Jesus is the one that we ought to consider taking. Here's what I want to read you. John chapter 1, verse 14, we see the position of Jesus. And I don't really think it relates to this story here. Let me read it to you. John chapter 14, verse 1, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son, 
who came from the Father, and look at this, this last part, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus came from the Father, and he was full of grace and full of truth. Those that come from the Father need to be full of grace, just like the Father in the story, full of grace and full of truth. He was not half grace, half truth, kind of, kind of you'll get the truth, you'll get the grace sometimes. He was completely full. To you who are rebellious or like the first son, let the truth of God's word be something that washes over you. You are called to, to know that this will not last. Your flourishing will come to an end. You cannot live like this and it will only bring pain and sorrow for those that are rebellious. Whether in this life or in the next, you're, it'll, it'll come home to you. To those who are in that place, may you be full of God's truth and understand the truth that he calls you to repentance and is willing to accept you with open arms. The other term for the second brother I would call is religious. And to those of you that are religious, I identify with this again. The, the word I have for you to do is let the, God, the grace of God, his fullness of grace, let it wash over you that no one is outside of God's grace. Because by the measure that you've been forgiven, by the grace, the measure of grace you've received, that's what you're called to give as well too. So church, let's decide, rather than being like anything specific, but being like Jesus, being full of grace, being full of truth, not being religious, not being rebellious, being full of grace and full of truth. And let's pray that way. Father, we thank you so much for the timelessness of this message, of this story that it transcends uh, and it will be around for the remainder of human history. We thank you for that truth. And I pray you would help us uh, who are rebellious to put that aside and to recognize that our rebellion will come to an end and the only choice is whether we choose to end it or if you end it for us. May we choose to be like the son in the story and realize that it's better to be a slave in my father's house than live for myself on my own. And Father, for those of, of us who are religious and who have great hurt over those that are, are different from us and the unfairness and they're not being justice in the story when, when people that have wronged you so bad that they, they get welcomed back. If that's our heart's desire, that religious spirit rises up, may we be people that are overwhelmed and reminded of the grace that we have already received. Would you fill us with your grace again to have grace for others, Lord? May we be full of grace and full of truth. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you guys so much for being a part of our uh, church family here today. Thank you for letting me share the word with you guys today. And we hope to see you next week.